Are you struggling with kids fighting, yelling, and more despite listening to the podcast and reading all the books? Parenting can be so overwhelming and exhausting. You know, I see you and I have something that will help. Mindful Parenting SOS. I'm offering free live mindful parenting sessions starting Monday, May 6th. Basically, live mindful parenting lessons that you normally have to pay for. So if you struggle with getting your kids to listen, tantrums, misbehavior, and feeling the guilt of yelling at your kid, then you should definitely get your spot in Mindful Parenting SOS. I'll be there to answer your questions in person, and if you can't make it, we will have replays available. Don't wait to get your spot now. It's free. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS to register. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS. I can't wait to see you there. The opposite of depression is showing up and embracing the bad stuff too and leaning fully in and having some of it be really tough, but feeling like you're in it and you're not going to turn away from it and that you're fully alive and that you're going to use the tools that you can use in order to get through it. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 279. Today, we're talking about how to detox your thoughts with Dr. Andrea Benoit. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence kids. Hey, welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. I am so glad you're here. It's spring. Spring is happening. It's warm. I've been doing some yoga out in my yard and I hope that wherever you are, you're enjoying some like outside time and some warm weather and some fun stuff. And so I'm so excited to talk to you about this topic today. I think it's so, so important. But before I tell you about it, I just want to give a little shout out to you if you're brand new. Hey, Welcome. Glad to connect with you. Today we're talking about how to detox your thoughts with Dr. Andrea Bonoir, and she's a licensed clinical psychologist, a speaker, media commentator, and she's the author of Detox Your Thoughts. And she also serves on Georgetown University's faculty, also mom, of course. And we're going to talk about how to take care of that negativity bias and those negative thoughts that we all have that arise, you know. So in order to be happy, do we always have to think happy thoughts? Do we have to banish negative thoughts? And Andrea says that our unhappiness comes not from having negative thoughts, but from paying too much attention to them, thus giving them too much power. So I'm really excited about talking about this idea because it has mindfulness written all over it. <laughs> we talk about how to approach negative thoughts. I want you to listen for some important takeaways, how we give our thoughts too much power in general. Most of our thoughts, right? We tend to identify with them. How we can lean into negative thoughts and feelings instead of blocking them. How to help your kids work through negative self-talk too. So this is a really important episode to listen all the way through to the end. All right, this is a powerful episode. Join me at the table now as we talk to Dr. Andrea Barnoir. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
I'm really enjoying your book, <laughs> Detox mm-hmm. from Your Thoughts. It started um, started as a challenge on BuzzFeed. And, you know, I'm all about this. I love, this is something I'm super passionate about. Like, you know, like we, we have this negativity bias. We have these challenges with our thoughts, but maybe you could kind of tell me like, you know, in your own words, like what, what is the problem with our, with our thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so we have such a strange relationship with our thoughts. I think even Americans in particular, we think that we have to have happy thoughts, that our thoughts have so much power. You know, if we think positively, we can make all these things happen. And the truth is, I think that often backfires because what we're really learning is that our thoughts don't have to define us, that thoughts themselves can be arbitrary. They can be weird. They can be random. And it's often when we give our thoughts too much power by paying so much attention to them and thinking that they mean something important, that that's when we get stuck into some negative ruts. And I think people are often surprised to learn that negative thoughts on their own those aren't what cause depression or anxiety or bad habits. It's, it's when negative thoughts become sticky that they start to cause depression or anxiety or bad habits. And I think it's the, it's that stickiness that often a lot of people get, get sucked into because they're fighting with their thoughts all the time, or they think that if they have a certain thought, it means something horrible. And so my goal in starting some of this work was really to bring some of the the science of thoughts to mainstream populations who might not realize just how wrong we tend to think about thoughts. Yeah. And as a, as a student of mindfulness for, for many, many years, like, you know, I can attest to this and this, the freedom that comes from the other side of like not believing all your thoughts is so enormous. You know, for me, when I, after I started my meditation practice, um, I, you know, I used to kind of fall into like, you know, I was 27 years when I was old, when I started and up until that time, my whole life, I would like fall into these little pits of like depression or not feeling like I could handle the world. I mean, just kind of like a highly sensitive person, right? Like, you know, I don't know. And, and then I started my meditation practice and like those pits went away. Like they literally went away for me. And it was such a huge game changer. And I really think it was just because I probably, you know, how that works, like with meditation, you know, you know, I know they're still researching and stuff, but like, I really think it was because I just wasn't like spiraling down because of those negative thoughts. I was just like, oh, I was interrupting them more or something. Would you think that might be possible? Yes. Yes. And I think that experience is so remarkable, but I hear that a lot because I think the key is to become, and and mindfulness is really good good at teaching this, is it's to become a, a gentle observer of your thoughts and experience and to be non-judgmental, you know, to be curious about your thoughts rather than ashamed or fearful of them. And I think for so many people, their mind feels like their own worst enemy. It feels like this, this dark, mysterious place that you can't control and that sometimes betrays you. And I think when people, 
people learn to adopt some practices of mindfulness, they become a lot better at recognizing that my thoughts can't automatically hurt me, that I can be aware of them and I can be curious about them. And I can, I can use them to give me some insight. And other times I can, I can observe them and say, this thought isn't particularly helpful and I'm going to watch it pass. I don't have to scream at it. And I don't have to feel like I'm a prisoner in my own head. And I think, you know, we are getting more anxious as a society. And certainly we've had an incredibly difficult year in so many ways. And I think for a lot of people, they do fall into the trap of feeling like they have to be positive, that they have to be happy, that if they have negative thoughts, then that means they're not being strong enough. And in reality, the opposite is, is true. Sometimes when we can lean into the difficult thoughts and feelings, they actually don't gain as much power and we're able to let them pass and we're able to feel more in control of them. Mm, There's so much there I want to talk to you about, but you know, so I love this idea that like, we don't have to be positive, like, because we tend to like be so hard on ourselves if we are not positive and we can lean, lean into those thoughts. But you also talked about like, the, that some of our bad habits and depression cause are happen because our thoughts are, are sticky too. So like, I want to hear about both of those, but maybe we can start (laughs) with sticky first. Like, tell me what you mean by sticky. Sure. By sticky, I mean, they keep coming back and they stay, they have this weight. So they're there all the time and we're listening to them all the time. And they feel like we can't step outside of them. They feel like they're part of us. So really this is sort of something that we call thought action fusion or or just cognitive fusion, this notion that our thoughts are, you know, equivalent to their actions or, or we're fused with our thoughts, our thoughts define us. And, And people with obsessive compulsive disorder really struggle with this because they have these intrusive repetitive thoughts and they feel like these thoughts are, are so meaningfully bad. They do anything to get rid of the thought, right? It's like this itch that keeps coming back and I've got to scratch it and scratch it and scratch it to make it go away. Whereas in reality, what we're learning is that the answer is something called cognitive defusion. To defuse from your thoughts means to be able to detach yourself from them and to actually observe them and and label them and recognize them but not have to scratch that itch so hard because it's not as threatening, right? I mean, the person with obsessive compulsive disorder is in so much distress because they hate those thoughts so, so much. And they're terrified that those thoughts will make them do something or, or have their compulsion. Whereas somebody that is free from that has really taken the tack that their thoughts alone can't hurt them. So when we get that cognitive diffusion going and we're able to separate from those thoughts and, and just be an observer in a mindful way, that's when they become less sticky because we're literally unsticking them from our own sense of self. And it's like that whole, like what we resist persists saying. And I love that you have attributed exactly. to Carl Jung. Cause I was like, I don't know who said that first, <laughs> but that, and that idea that like, it's like, you know, if you're trying to push a beach ball down under the water, like it's going to pop up somewhere yes. or like, you know, try not to think of a, a, of a 
of a purple elephant with white polka dots. Like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Good luck with that. I love that. That actually has a name, ironic processing theory. That's yes. Wild. Isn't that a goofy <laughs> name? But it's really, it's really true, right? It's our brain is not going to respond well to us trying to harness it in this way. Or like you said, the beach ball, I think so many people are afraid of their thoughts or, yeah. or even their feelings for that matter, because they mm-hmm. think, oh, if I, if I actually observe this thought or acknowledge it, it means that it's true or that I think it, or that I'm being Mm -hmm. a negative person, or it's going to make my mood go sour. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it's like, no, it's, it's, it's precisely the opposite. When I'm able to observe my thoughts and label them, they pass. They're not like the beach ball being forced to be underneath the the water because the beach ball gets to float away and I'm not holding it anymore. Oh, way to take that metaphor and run with it. I love that. <laughs> I love a you, good Andrea. metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that ties back to what you said about we don't have to be positive and we can actually lean into it. So what you're describing is like an acceptance. And sometimes like when I'm talking about mindfulness and kind of this idea of sort of some of the clarity and, and the freedom and a little bit of that space for observation that we get, I say how, you know, it's not like you don't get all those, like, you know, it's not like you don't feel fear, anxiety, have weird, weird ass, crazy thoughts coming through Mm -hmm. your head. It's just that you don't, you're, yeah, it's like, there's a, you're not, you're not fused to them. Like, you're like, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at that. Isn't the mind a crazy thing? You know? So, so tell me more about kind of leaning, leaning into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so true. I think so many people think if I let myself feel negative thoughts, then I'm going to feel negatively forever. Or, you know, we teach our kids this very early, think happy thoughts, turn that, turn that frown upside down, right? The smiley face is the ultimate in praise. And in reality, it, it is true that if we actually can lean into the negative thoughts and lean into the negative feelings, we're going to cope better because there are a couple of reasons for that. So the first part of leaning in is really about finding the tools to manage it. You know, if you always run from sadness or if you always push it down or you never acknowledge it, then that denies you the opportunity to learn what helps you feel it and let it pass, right? If you learn to label it and talk about it or reach out to a friend or to acknowledge that you're sad, or acknowledge that you're going through a period of loss, then you're able to find meaning in that feeling and you're able to actually get new strategies. Okay, I know when I feel sad and lonely, I like to connect with this friend, or maybe sometimes when I feel sad, I feel like I don't have you know, much interesting going on in, on in my life. So I will do something creative or you know, maybe this type of music helps put me in a better mood. You're actually learning the skills to be able to manage the feeling. Whereas when we don't lean into it, we, we tend to deny ourselves that opportunity and we teach ourselves that those feelings are unacceptable, right? And so then when they do come, because we have had a loss, then what are we going to do? You know, the only thing we know how to do at that point is to run from them or to try to numb them or escape from them. And, and I think we do do this to our kids sometimes, you know, we, we teach them that, you know, the best way to feel is happy. And therefore I think what we don't realize is that we're actually denying them the opportunity to get a toolbox of things to use when they are sad because sadness will come and sadness is just as valid a part of life 
as happiness. And I think it's hard for us to recognize that, you know, but it's like Mm -hmm. when I work with somebody who has gotten sober after substance abuse, for instance, I think the average person might assume that it's about, you know, finding ways to be happy, 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 and, and, you know, find a happy life, even without your substance of choice. And in reality, if you work with folks like this, they'll tell you that it's not about that. It's about actually leaning into feeling things more fully and no, they're not happy all the time, but they feel like they're living and living means embracing the tough parts too, and, and being fully alive for them. You know, the opposite of depression is not a big, fat, smiley emoji. The opposite of depression is showing up and embracing the bad stuff too, and leaning fully in and, and having some of it be really tough, but feeling like you're in it and you're not going to turn away from it and that you're fully alive and that you're going to use the tools that you can use in order to get through it, but you're not going to try to numb yourself or detach yourself from it. And, and that's hard. I mean, I think we want to make our kids comfortable. We want to make ourselves comfortable. So a lot of times it's easier to say, oh, you know, it's not appropriate for me to be feeling sad right now. I'm at work. Let me just stuff it. But it does have a way of, of haunting us later on. If we're constantly stuffing negative emotion, it really does have a way to haunt us. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. I love this idea that the opposite of depression is being fully alive. And I can imagine the listener hearing that from you, Andrea, and thinking like, oh, what do they want me to be like, have this like be this like roller coaster of like chaotic emotional expression. And 
I, I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you jump in here and correct me, but like the, I mean, for me anyway, like the idea of like, when I can fully feel all the feelings, there's, I actually have more equanimity because I'm, I'm feeling it and then I'm letting it pass and I, and I'm, I'm I'm feeling it, but I don't have to react so much in some ways. Like I can feel all the sensations in the body and yeah, and I have a good cry. And then there, then there's a new moment, but tell me what your response to that idea is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think people are afraid of letting themselves feel and, Mm -hmm. and certainly with depression, I mean, not to minimize it all, there's a whole host of, of treatments that really need to be employed, you know, potentially when somebody is, is depressed and we should look at the whole picture that, you know, there might be some medical concerns, there might be some nutritional concerns, there might be abusive relationships, there might be all kinds of things, there might be all kinds of, of tools that we need to treat it. But I think in general, People are really afraid of, of feeling their emotions and, and people who feel lonely and detached and sort of aimless, a lot of times they're, they're scared of letting themselves fully embrace emotions because they feel like, oh, well, if I start to cry, I'll never stop. Or mm-hmm. you know, if I let myself be on this full ride of emotions, I'm going to be on a roller coaster, you know, as you said. And the truth is that the more that we avoid the negative emotions, that's when they become so scary. That's when we become so ill-equipped to manage them. And so it's not going to be a roller coaster Mm -hmm. if we've actually had some practice letting ourselves label them. And and so that really means, you know, using those cliched I statements sometimes, you know, I I feel upset that you said that, or I am feeling low today and I'm not really sure why. And, And even the labeling, I mean, there's research that says that it's just so powerful to even just give voice to our emotion. You know, some people keep journals or they do something artistic with it, or they reach out to a friend and ironically, those techniques really help the emotion pass more quickly than if we're fighting it all the time and pretending that we don't have it. Yeah, I love that. Um, name it, name it to tame it, right? Like as we, it's like accepting that this is here and, and, and I love this. So in, in mindful parenting, we talk about a lot of tools to, to manage uh, our feelings and also to to diffuse from our thoughts but you also talk about diffusing your thought from your thoughts here in um, detox from your thoughts so um, what are some ways that people can get a little bit of separation a little from from the thoughts that they feel like maybe are plaguing their mind yeah, there are lots of fun techniques for this. And it starts with the basic sort of self-distancing, what we call it, which is even the way that you hear your thought or think about your thought instead of, you know, oh, tonight's going to be a disaster or, oh, that was stupid that I said that or, oh, I bet she's mad that I didn't email her back. Label that as a thought first, you know. I'm having the thought that tonight's going to be a disaster. I'm having the thought that she's mad at me. That's that first step. And it seems silly and small, but really it reminds your brain, wait a second, that thought is not actually necessarily my reality. And you can take this a step, um, a step further by talking about it in the third person. And this is where people really get a kick out of it. They say seriously, but I have some clients right now that are like, you know, this is really working. So instead of, you know, Andrea thinks that she's going to be a bozo on this interview, or actually that's what you want to say, right? Is Andrea thinks that, you know, she's doing a bad job at parenting today, or, you know, Andrea is having the thought that she's a terrible mother. And 
it sounds so silly, but it does give us that one extra step of distance when we talk about it in the third person, because it reminds us to be an observer. And then you can get even funnier with, you know, thinking about different ways to experience your thoughts. So if you have this, you know, nagging thought, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. I can't believe I did that. Why did I accidentally write that in an email to my boss? You can turn that thought into something with, you know, a funny voice. You know, some of my clients have have characters, right? And, and we're kind of afraid of doing this at times like, oh, I don't want to have voices inside of my head. But, you know, I have clients that have like the heckler in the mental audience and they literally will take some of those negative thoughts that keep coming back and they'll turn them into the voice of the drunken guy at the comedy club who's just heckling and heckling. You're really <laughs> stupid. I can't believe you said that. That's not that's not a good performance at all. And they'll label it that and they'll hear it in that voice and it seems silly and yeah it kind of makes them laugh but that's not really the key. The key is also that you're recognizing that this is not an objective truth. That this is a lens that you can choose to look through but it's no more valid or accurate than your average heckler, right? It doesn't make much sense or or maybe more general worries you can even see more visually. You know, I have clients that talk about their, their worry blob, like, okay, I can see the worry blob coming and it's dark and it's gray and maybe figuring out where you feel it in your body can really up the mindfulness too. Okay. The worry blob, it's settling into my chest and it feels like a weight and I can feel my, my heart getting heavier with this worry blob. And, and when you know exactly how you feel it in your body, then you can take really good steps to counteract that in the moment. Okay. Let me do some breathing. Let me do some neck rolls that reduce my tension. Let me take, you know, some visualization moments to actually help this worry blob disappear. And I can watch it try to disappear in my head. And, and, you know, I mean, people turn thoughts into songs, they write them down in the different language. I mean, there's no limit to the types of techniques and the book talks about a lot of them because once people find what works for them, it really is remarkable to see them develop the habit and then put it into practice regularly. Now, do you see, well, there's a, a few things there. I've been chided at certain times for talking about myself in the third person at a dinner party with a certain friends. So I'll be like, Hunter, blah, 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 blah. And they've just like laughed at me. But I wanted to point out to you that I think this is so interesting. Like in the, in the, in, in, from the, the Buddhist sense, like it actually makes a lot more sense to talk about ourselves in the third person because our true self is not our body. It's not our mind, right? We are more like, you know, we are the observer, right? Like we are the consciousness and the observer mm -hmm. rather than, you know, our body is constantly changing. It's, you know, there's nothing that's, you know, well, everything is constantly changing, mm -hmm. including our consciousness as well. But, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. So the third per person is more accurate, like in like the way in some cultures, people say, instead of I'm Hunter, they might say they call, they call me Hunter, right? Like, which mm -hmm. I think is really interesting, right? I, anyway, I just love that. But also I wonder like, um, and I love how it reminds us to be the observer even though it may sound a little wacky. Uh, <laughs> yes, but maybe like, dinner parties are not the totally <laughs> ideal time to practice these techniques out loud. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I've got a totally 
strange side to me, I'm sure. Uh, that, but everyone who, who knows me well would agree to that. Uh, so, but the, I'm wondering that the steps to like take care of the worry blob, like if you, you were talking about, like, say someone has a worry blob and then they're like, oh, I can feel it in my chest, blah, blah, blah. That sometimes those steps that people do to kind of like, um, that can that can be like a subtle kind of resistance that makes them, that makes it like hang on even more like, like, oh, these deep breaths I'm taking, they're supposed to get rid of this thing, right? So they're not yes. accepting it. Can you talk a little bit to that? Because I see that in my, the people I work with in mindful parenting. Sure, sure. Yeah. And with acceptance and commitment therapy, we're really seeing that it really works best when the sole goal is not okay, make the thoughts go away. These techniques yeah. are going to eradicate the thoughts that that's kind of missing the point. The point is actually to make the thoughts less powerful. And so I think leaning into that is really important because if people think they're going to do two rounds of diaphragmatic breathing, and then their worries are gone forever, that's going to be a disappointment. Whereas they're going to notice instead with the breath, do I feel a little more engaged in the moment right now and more open to the experience, even of having these worries, they don't seem so scary, or maybe they're going to disappear a little bit more quickly, but I'm not going to count on that as the soul, the soul goal here. Cause the goal is actually for me to be able to coexist with these worries and feel empowered to move through them. And the happy side effect is that in time, the worries will come less often because mm -hmm. they don't really have a purpose anymore. They're, you're not going to notice them as much when they're not as bothersome. You know, it's like they just become something that doesn't really click with you. And so you don't attune to it. But I think that people, you know, go that my worries are going to, you know, completely disappear, then you have to think about how rigid that is as a thought and how that goes completely against the idea of being open to these more difficult emotions. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Thank you. I appreciate you clarifying that, Andrea, because, yeah, I think that that can be like this, like little subtle kind of like wheel spinning that we get into, um, you know. Uh, so you talk in your book about um, recognizing and counteracting your blind spots. How do we how do we even start to see our blind spots as far as our thinking? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. And of course, therapy helps with this. <laughs> the most common blind spots you can start to recognize by even looking at the way that you think, you know, so certainly some of the, the thought observance that we've already been talking about, noticing what thoughts come up, labeling them as thoughts and looking for patterns. Also the way that we speak and the way that, you know, we might even communicate with other people via text or whatever, maybe all or none thinking, for instance, is, starts to be pretty clear. You know, you start to notice, huh? A lot of the times when I'm texting my friends, I'm saying, you know, oh, this job is the worst or, you know, uh, it's never going to get better with my kids in the arguing or, you know, I'm using these never or the worst or these kind of extreme. Always. My kids are always X. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's so easy to fall into that. But then you notice like, wait a second, language matters. And that the way that we talk, it, it doesn't just reflect how we think, but it actually affects how we think. And that maybe if we're constantly using all or none language, for instance, it really does make us less able to see the world in a way that makes us happy or to be grateful for what we do have or to calm ourselves down when we can because those type of blind spots often they they've gotten ingrained over periods of years and years and years you know all or none thinking is is so much like that people tend to start thinking that way maybe even as a teenager so when we can recognize those types of blind spots we can start to counteract them in the moment and then we build that muscle of putting on that alternative lens in the moment and after a while it becomes more natural. All right. So just pay, paying attention, right? That observance, mm -hmm. paying attention and then interrupting. So it's so like very mindfulness based. I love that. I love that. So you talk about uh, the idea that sometimes people chase pleasure and miss out on meaning. And you talk about, you have some qu wonderful questions in that chapter, but uh, that I would love to, I would love to kind of pull forward about a about how to kind of like find sort of more meaning. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about this idea of like chasing pleasure and missing out on meaning. What do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of us view happiness as pure pleasure, simple joys all the time. And that misses some of the depth of what true fulfillment, true happiness often is. And I think the people that really have the most fulfilled lives, if, if you look at the research, there's a different kind of happiness there. It's not, you know, purely pleasurable, right? It, instead, it's, it's about depth. It's about having a sense of purpose 
purpose. It's about believing that even difficult times are part of the bigger picture. It's about growth. It's about having values that you're true to and that help guide you when times are tough and, and having a sense of purpose that can make you feel that even the challenges are worth it. And that's really that depth of happiness. I think so many of us have seen people flame out and burn out, you know, the classic celebrity story. They get everything they've ever dreamed of and they get so rich and they're at the top of their game. And yet things start to feel empty because there's no real sense of purpose anymore or a real sense of, of meaning. And so I think a lot of times this pursuit of happiness that we go on as Americans or that we teach our kids to go on is really looking for external senses of validation or achievement and that type of, of happiness, quote unquote. But that doesn't leave room for the fact that life does get really difficult. You know, this past year, who would have thought, right? And, and it's a perfect example People have been miserable this past year in a lot of ways, and, and we've had really hard times, but I don't think that has to mean that it's purely been unhappy because I think people who can derive a sense of meaning from this challenging time actually can see that, you know, that that's, that's part of a deeper fulfillment is, is learning something and growing from difficult times. So I think, you know, pleasures are great and, and I'm not saying let's not seek joy because seeking joy, it, it makes life very sweet, but I think we need something a little bit more than that. And if we, if we chase pleasure at the expense of the deeper stuff, that's when we really see some emptiness. Yeah. I, I love that. You're, you know, and I think that's so true. And it's kind of like talking about a little bit, you know, you're talking about a little bit between the difference between the kind of experiential mind and the storytelling mind, right? Like there's mm -hmm. some, you know, you ask the question, how would you want your life to be summed up one day, you know, and that's kind of tying into this idea that we tell, you know, our thoughts, we tell stories, you know, our, our mind is this meaning making machine and, and it's telling stories about our life. And those stories can give a lot of satisfaction, right. And meaning and depth mm -hmm. uh, versus that just pure experiential moment of biting into the Oreo or whatever it is. <laughs> right. You know, um, yes. Yes. And we have a complicated relationship right now with storytelling, I think too, because so many of us are telling stories for other people, right? We're making mm. sure that our Instagram feeds are perfectly curated to look good to everyone else. And yet we're actually missing out on what is this really supposed to be saying to me, right? Like, what am I supposed to actually be feeling and experiencing here? You know, the whole sort of calculating a story as a narrator for someone else's benefit is really complicated. I, I think we do that a lot. You know, it's like, okay, well, I looked good in this photo or my kid achieved this, or I'm proud of this. And I think if you get too much into that, you start to feel kind of like a, you know, you're on this treadmill of, of constantly trying to go somewhere and achieve something and prove something. And the actual experience of being on the, on the treadmill is, is pretty lonesome. Mm, yes, that's so true. I mean, that, that's like our, that's like our, our kind of social species, right? Like us being in a, you know, a, a group where status and things like that matters kind of gone awry and like that, mm -hmm. the, that telling a story for others. So thinking, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, we talked about negative self-talk and how we can diffuse from negative self-talk and some tools we can use to, to deal with that ourselves. What do you, what do you recommend 
maybe a parent may do or say if we hear like our child using negative self-talk, like I know that my daughter, you know, for simple examples, like, you know, I, oh, I can't do that, you know, and I always say, yet, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to like, I want to be that, I want to be that positive voice in her, that yes. comes up in her head later, right? So what are some things we can do as parents to help our, help our kids diffuse from their thoughts and deal with that negativity in their own, you know, that's just natural for us? Yeah, for sure. I think we, we want to swoop in and, and, you know, just say the opposite. Oh, you can do this. Oh, you're great at that. And, and yet we're learning, you know, with, with kids, mental health challenges are really increasing even pre-pandemic. So something's not going right, you know, when we try to swoop in that way. And I think the important part is to really cultivate an understanding that thoughts don't define you and that thoughts are okay, but they're not necessarily true. You know, any thought is not necessarily you. Any thought is not necessarily true either, of course. And so, you know, when your child is showing those thoughts of being, you know, unable to do something or not good at something, you know, part of it is having them use those same tools of recognizing it as a thought. So even, you know, you're having that thought and, you know, that thought might be coming from anxiety. Are you looking through a lens that makes sense right now? You know, some kids respond well to sort of the metaphor of glasses. Like, am I looking through clear glasses right now? Or did I put on a pair of glasses that is not uh, the prescription that I need to see clearly and these glasses are scratched or they're distorted or they're super, super dark. So I can't see anything at all. Right. What kind of lenses am I putting on it and looking through or if I have the same thoughts over and over again that are very distressing, you know, kids respond really well to that idea of a, of a character too. You know, I've got my, my stage fright bully that often starts to yell at me when I'm about to speak up in class, but that stage fright bully really doesn't know me very well and doesn't have any important information to give me. So I know that it's going to be yelling, but I'm going to just keep on going and, and the show must go on and, and that kind of thing. But I think we do we do often swoop in with our kids in a way that, that has, you know, sort of the backfire effect of, of invalidating their experience, you know, Oh, don't cry. Or you have nothing to be afraid of, or, you know, it's going to be okay. Oh, you're okay. And it's so tempting to do that because we think it's comforting, but in reality, the biggest comfort is actually helping teach them that, yeah, this, this is hard. You are feeling big feelings and let's work on giving you tools to move through them or, or let me sit with you here in this feeling. You know, I mean, one of the reasons therapy is so powerful is because you're having someone bear witness. You're having someone there with you in your pain, not because that person's taking away that pain in that moment immediately, but they're, they're experiencing it with you and they're there and they're not running away. And so a lot of times I think our job as a parent is instead of, you know, making their feelings go away, it's helping them understand that we get it and that the feelings are big. And now let's move forward and figure out how to act on them. You know, I think a lot of times we want to take our kids' feelings away because it's like, well, if my kid gets mad, they're going to scream or they're going to throw stuff and they're going to behave in a way we don't want them to. But that pause is really important. It's not the anger that's the problem. We don't need our kids to not be angry. We need our kids to not go on autopilot when they're angry and start screaming or start hitting their sister. That's what we need. So we need to teach that pause. And that's very different than teaching them not to be angry. I love that. I love it. everything you're saying, Andrea, is like really beautiful. Um, now I'm curious, you you help all these 
you know, you help your clients and things like that. But the work that you've done with this, with, with the, you know, diffusing from your thoughts and things like that, how has that helped you personally in your own life? Yeah. Well, I certainly have to own up to all of my hypocritical moments, right? I think so many of us, you know, are out there trying to do the work and help others. And we're learning the tools and we're reading the research and we have a clinical practice. And then it's like, oh, that all goes out the window sometimes at 1045 at night when I've just, you know, I've had such a long day and everybody's cooped up in the house for almost an entire year. So I think I try to use these techniques and I believe in them so passionately. And I see them work when I put them into practice too. But I also recognize this is real life, you know, and, and my kids love being able to be like, mom, that's all or none thinking or, you know, I mean, literally my daughter will say that to me sometimes or, you know, or, well, you know, you're a therapist, so you should be a little more patient with me. What would you tell your client? And it's like, you know. We're all human beings, but I think, you know, maybe it's just an excuse, but it really is part of that larger picture that it is ultimately about giving yourself some grace too, right? Like these techniques work beautifully and I can employ them most of the time. And I think I'm, I'm pretty decent at, at managing my emotional health, but not a hundred percent of the time. And honestly, maybe that gives me a little more empathy for the battle that everybody's facing, because I know that if I have the tools at my disposal and that I teach these tools and I can't always put them into practice, then I need to have even more compassion for people who are learning these tools for the first time and might not totally be buying into them yet. Mm. Yes. Yes. So, so true. (laughs) All those things you said. Yes. My, my daughter sometimes says to me like, Oh, mom, you have to read your own book. (laughs) Yes. My husband has occasionally been known to say, I I think you should detox that thought. I think you should get, you know, and it's like, okay, okay. (laughs) Touche. And so you just kind of referred to this, but I really love how you bring in the idea of ahimsa into your book. Um, and ahimsa is one of the five precepts in, in yoga, uh, but I'll let you explain it. Can you tell us a little more about it? Sure. Sure. And I love this. And I credit my own therapist for having brought this into my life when I was in therapy during a difficult time. And she also has a yoga background, um, in addition to being a clinical psychologist. So it was very much sort of a a nice, almost spiritual addition to the way that I thought about some of these cognitive techniques. So the concept of ahimsa is this concept that we're all connected and that when we hurt another human being, we hurt ourselves too. And the way my therapist had used it for me was going the other direction because I was being particularly hard on myself during this period of my life and was blaming myself for things that I just couldn't stop blaming myself for despite needing to let go of that. And I think that, you know, turning it that way, realizing that every time I was unkind to myself or that I was really aggressively violent with (laughs) blaming myself when I would have never done that to someone else, I was in a way putting unkindness back into the universe too, because if we all are connected, it really does go both ways. And I think so many moms in particular, they're really good with the compassion towards everyone else but they really struggle with turning the compassion inward and having some grace for themselves. And I think, you know, that's a classic problem. And I think this concept of ahimsa helps drive home the fact that you're not doing anyone any good 
by beating yourself up. And that in reality, when you're beating yourself up, there's going to be a ripple effect somehow. You know, if, if you're being so negative to yourself, your kids are going to maybe pick up on that, or there's going to be a negative tone in the house, or you're not going to be as productive in the work you do in helping other people or whatever it might be. We all are really connected. And, and I love that because I think it's a way of thinking more profoundly about the way that some of these cognitive techniques can actually help society as large. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Amen to that. I love that. Um, Andrea, this is, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I love your, I love your book and your writing style is really fun. So don't be, (laughs) don't be afraid to buy the book. It's detox from your thoughts. Where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Thank you so much for that, by the way. So yeah, so my website, drandreabonier.com or even detoxyourthoughts.com, it goes to the same place. That would be a good place to start. I am on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, despite despite myself, you know, sometimes I think I need to detox from those. Um, and the book's available wherever books are sold. Great. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do in the world and for, for putting this all out in such a really accessible way and, and sharing it with us in, in this way. It's really, um, really beautiful and has, I'm sure we'll have ahimsa ripple effects all around. And, and I really, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you so much. And thank you not only for having me, but for all of the beautiful work that you're doing as well. What a powerful episode. I hope this is going to empower you to take a more active role in taking care of your thoughts, understanding your thoughts, being proactive about the info that your brain is serving you up, you know, how to deal with that mindfully. So you can do it. You know, we can start to shift and change things. The only thing that's constant is that we are constantly changing. That is the only truth. So all those stories you have told yourself in the past are old. They're gone. They're simply old stories. And you can decide how you want to show up. You can decide the story that you want to write about your life. You know, I was thinking about this. We kind of look back at the story of our lives, right? Say, oh, it was like this. It was like that. We explain and analyze and understand it. But how much more powerful would it be to think ahead to 20 years from now, 15 years from now, when your kids are a lot older, what's the story they're going to tell about their childhood? What is the story that you are currently writing about your family? And is that the story you want to be telling about your family? Is that the story you want to be telling about your family? These can be so powerful and they can change. All it takes is a decision. All it takes is a decision to change it. And then we can start that process of change. You know, we can listen to our higher selves. We can stop listening to those voices of doubt and fear and what if and take a leap and do the things that really matter to us and invest our time, our energy, our attention into what is really important to us. So for me, that's, that is my family. That is this life that is changing things for not just my family, but for everybody. That's what this whole mindful parenting movement is all about. Like I want, you know, it's great to go help kids in schools. It's wonderful to help kids in schools, but you know what? When a kid gets to school, they're probably five years old, four years old. Like a lot has happened then. If we can start to change families, wow, that's when we are really, really shifting the bedrock of our culture, 
if we can sort of change those families. It's really, really powerful. So, hey, I hope this episode has been helpful for you. I hope it's been powerful. I want to hear what your takeaways are. I can take a screenshot of you listening to this right now and share it with me. Tag me on Instagram at mentor and share your takeaways. You know, you sharing and you leaving reviews and stuff, that's like the best way to make this change. It's awesome that you're here, that you're listening, that you're engaged, that you're here all the way at the end, that you're part of this movement. I I appreciate that. I appreciate this time that we've had together and I hope you appreciate this episode and I hope it makes some shifts in your life, whether it's like just a little teeny shift or if it's a big shift. Either way, I'd love to know. I'd love for you to let me know. My friends, I will be back in your ears next week, of course. And next week's episode is about power of gratefulness. And oh man, if you listen, you're going to hear me like crying because I'm crying during the episode. It's like so powerful and cathartic and amazing and intense and I love it. So make sure you tune in, make sure you're subscribed and all that. And I will talk to you next week. I can't wait to connect then. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. They definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them. and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clarkfields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the wait list. So you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Mindfulparentingcourse.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, 
is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 